Hey, this is Thor from Cybrary. If you've been enjoying the Cybrary podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cybrary.it. From all of us at Cybrary, thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of 401 Access Denied. I'm Joe Carson, your host, Chief Security Scientist and Advisory CISO at Thycotic. And it's a pleasure to be here. I'm joined with a world-renowned, awesome guest who's coming with me today to have a very important topic. So, Quentin, would you like to give uh, the audience a bit of introduction about who you are and what you do? Uh, thanks, Joe. I mean, I don't know if I'll live up to all of that, but uh, yes, I'm Quentin Taylor. I look after information security um, at uh, Canon. Been there for quite a while. Um, I also have a YouTube channel um, where I do various bits of RFID hacking and various other bits and pieces. Um, and I just it, been in information security virtually my entire career. And uh, I'm probably one of the youngest of the old guard, if that's actually acceptable <laughs> to say. I, I would agree. We, we've been around for a long time. And I actually, I, I miss having conversations with you. It's been so long. Um, the pandemic has, has kept us apart, but on social, um, I, I highly recommend the audience to to subscribe to your YouTube channel because it is so much fun and educational. I even learn a lot from it. I've got a couple of Proxmarks, uh, which I've uh, bricked a few times, um, and yourself and uh, Chris has really helped me get them back. <laughs> so um, very educational. I'll definitely recommend you. Know, and one of the things, you know, I'll let you explain, you know, give the audience a little bit of understanding of what you actually do on your YouTube channel and, uh, you know, what things you share on there, because I think it's really important and very educational. Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> my YouTube channel has got a bit of a drone bits and pieces on there, mm. uh, but mainly it's a lot of RFID. And I've been doing a lot of collaborations with uh, Timur uh, Yusnov at the moment, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, sorry, and, and Leanne Galloway was on there as well uh, just over the summer, um, talking about everything from contactless credit card security. Um, and this all came about, actually, because I did a video where I said, mm -hmm. confidently, <laughs> that card clash was all that you needed to prevent credit card fraud. And mm -hmm. Timur mailed me and said, are you absolutely sure? Which was his very Russian way of saying, I think you're wrong. And actually, I'm quite an expert in this. So I said, well, why don't you come on the channel and show me? And then he did. And I realized just how little I knew about certain aspects of security. And we've done several collaborations since. It's been absolutely awesome. Fantastic. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, it's always, I think it's really important is that's when we start really learning is, is when we get those experts in the field to come and help us, you know, on really understand about, you know, some of the things that happens in the background. So, and it, the same for me, I, I was never into physical security uh, until maybe about seven, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and that really got me into, you know, into looking at uh, Proxmarks and RFID cloners and really getting into the details about how it really works. Um, so your videos and, you know, Iceman's and you know, all the, all the people out there are fantastic because it really helps educate, uh, and really kind of mm. get into the understanding about, because I think, um, one of the, one of the topics we're going to be talking about in the episode and the main theme is of course around is the state of cybersecurity. And sometimes for me, I, I always like to think of things in the physical world and do those relations. And I think when I look at, you know, things like RFID or physical security and door locks and even padlocks. Sometimes it is a really good way to to teach and educate 
what it is like in a digital scenario. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think those really relate. So, I mean, is it, if you talk about some of the reasons what, why you would like to focus around the physical security and the door locks and RFID contactless stuff, what, what uh, you know, do you kind of use that as a basis for teaching and educating on, on the digital yeah, side? Yeah, because if you can't get the physical stuff right, then all of the cyber controls. I was talking to someone recently at a mm -hmm. conference and he said, why is this important? And I'm like, that's a really good question. It's like, well, the access controls to your data center, how mm -hmm. are they controlled? Oh, via RFID. Right. So if I can copy your data center access card, which probably has 24 hour access, I can get directly into your data center and probably past all of the doors in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. And there was a yes. I was like, exactly. And that's why this stuff's important. Because with a lot of the software side, it's we're very mm -hmm. much used to saying, what crypto algorithm, what this, what that, what the mm -hmm. other. Yet with RFID, people just take the RFID fob or token or plain white card mm -hmm. and they go, oh, it's an RFID card. And you say, well, well, do you know that that RFID card is breakable and that one mm -hmm. is less breakable? They look identical. And if you don't yep. actually ask what one's what or how are they mm -hmm. all set up? I was doing a, um, a, a physical um, assessment of mm -hmm. a building and it had an ancient Indala-based system in it. And we were looking at it and I said, and I looked at the cards, and in Indala mm -hmm. cards, the first four digits of the of the serial number on the card is the year of, or can be the year of manufacture, mm -hmm. depending if you bought the expensive cards. We, we did. And I looked mm -hmm. at it, and I looked around the room, and I said, do you realize that this card was made in 1980, which makes this card <laughs> physically older than every single person in this room? <laughs> and, and it was like, so we're currently dealing with a system mm -hmm. that was installed between before all of us here were born. And, yeah. um, and and somehow we would never trust. We would never trust. If you said, oh, I've got a web server and it's from 1982 and it's still running, you'd go, oh, God, that probably got security by total obsolescence and no one knows how to hack it anymore. But you'd never do that. Whereas in Absolutely. physical security, you stick these locks in and then you go, oh, it'll last 20 years, last 30 yeah, years. Yeah, and that's the thing is that, you know, when, when it when, – and that's what, you know, we've done a lot of uh, topics and discussions around the things like IoT and critical infrastructure and those things is that we see systems that's been in for like, you know, I worked in a lot of maritime and shipping industries and uh, power stations. And you, time and time again, you see this old equipment that's been around for 20, 30 years. I remember watching, um, I was uh, fortunate enough to watch a satellite decommissioning project. And that, you know, the button that was designed to start decommissioning of that satellite had been designed 30 years ago. <laughs> and, and they're just going, no one's pushed this button until now, and we hope it works. <laughs> so, so sometimes you're sitting on those, those elements, you know, the, the, the basis and, and foundation of everything um, can be really old. And, and, and do they ever get updated? Do you ever, anyone ever takes a second look? So my question to you, and when we think about, you know, this, I'm always looking to, for example, the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report. I, mm. I look at a lot of the yearly reports that come out as a bit of a, a temperature gauge into whether we're improving or getting worse. Um, and some areas I do see improvements and I do see, you know, prioritization mm. changing. I just want to get a kind of a measurement from you. What, what, you know, what's the current state of cybersecurity in the industry? I mean, is it something that we're are we making the right directions? Are we getting better? Or is it early for concern? What, what's your thoughts on the current state? So it depends upon when you say what's the current mm -hmm. state of the cybersecurity industry. The cybersecurity industry itself is doing very well. More money is being spent. Yeah. And let's be very really honest here. And no offense to any instant response companies. Mm -hmm. When I see instant response companies soaring share prices, I worry <laughs> a lot. Because it's not that I don't want to see them as soaring mm -hmm. share prices. 
I might end up working for one of them at one point in time. And it'd be great to get some good stock options. But my point really is, when we see them soaring stock options mm-hmm. and see huge amounts of money being spent on cybersecurity, the cybersecurity industry is doing brilliantly. And yeah. that's what worries me. We as an industry forget that we're here to protect everybody else. And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of the bits of the cybersecurity industry are so busy in being buried in the cybersecurity industry. Going, hey, look at this latest breach. Isn't it yeah. great? No, it's not great. A breach is never good. Hey, look at this latest vulnerability. We can, we can market that and stick it in our product. No, that's not good. But the industry is doing very well. As, a, as, a, as humanity, how are we doing mm-hmm. with cybersecurity? We're improving dramatically. Mm-hmm. But the attackers and the attack surface and the dependency is also increasing at a far greater. So we're going mm-hmm. up, but we're getting this far greater thing going on. And we're starting to see trickle down in not a good way. Mm-hmm. We're starting to see, like, trickle-down normally is, oh, it gets on the space program, and then your pen really good and stuff. <laughs> trickle-down in cybersecurity is it gets used by one nation-state against another nation-state, and then the lower-end criminals start to use it, and it mm-hmm. becomes commoditized. And now that attack that everyone thought, oh, that's really difficult, no one will ever do that, now becomes a commoditized attack. I mean, what we're yeah. talking about with RFID earlier on, um, mm-hmm. RFIDs are... are a great example of something where we, when we're doing anything to do with RFID, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. People yep. have done amazing work before us to allow us to be able to play with RFID. But mm-hmm. there's also criminals who are able to play with contactless credit card data. I mean, literally just behind me, Timur was doing the demonstration yep. of how you stick a, a credit card with a known PIN code, so a credit card you mm-hmm. own, but then intercept the commu- the Bluetooth communications between the reader and the mm-hmm. PC, and um, rewrite the credit card number uh, on the fly and the expiry date on the fly to one that you didn't oh. put the PIN number in, and suddenly you actually charge a different credit card, the one, the second one you put mm-hmm. in. So the reader does a complete check to make sure that that card and that PIN code work, and then but the transaction is edited midstream to put a different credit card number in. Apparently this is a very valid attack, and people do this all the time for low numbers. Yeah. So, and, and that's, I mean, that's one of the things that I mean, really getting into the foundation is, uh, you know, when we think about from the, um, everything's moving to basically low energy, um, near proximity communications, you know, especially for things like, you know, IOT uh, for home smart so, devices. You, yeah. But if you look at some of the IOT locks, sorry, but Andrew Tierney did an yeah. awesome analysis where uh, Cyber Gibbons on Twitter, we should always follow yeah, Cyber. Yeah. Yep. He did a great one where he took an IOT lock a new IoT lock, mm-hmm. and he took a standard £6.95 Wix, um, other locks are available, uh, uh, mortise lock, and went mm-hmm. through the physical security features, pointing out that the £6.95 lock was far more resilient to drilling, general mm-hmm. breaking, a blowtorch, you know, any kind of picking and everything else, than the £180 IoT cyber lock, which mm-hmm. was not so good at cybery stuff, but anyway, imagine it was. <laughs> but it was made out of cast zinc and you could just put a blowtorch on it until it's dripped off and they go, oh, I'll just open the lock. Or I'll just hit it with a hammer. Or I'll do any one of a number of physical attacks. Sorry, please. No, absolutely. This reminds me, you know, I've, I've done uh, watched a lot of the, the guys who's doing, you know, uh, from the physical security. I just love even even the, the air canister. Uh, basically, to open up, you know, the sensor doors. doors. You know, some of the some of the things in the creativity and the simple things basically open doors. I mean, I'm sitting I'm sitting here always next to me. I've got my uh, 
and the basically RFID cloner as well. I mean, was it something like 10 euros um, that you can basically clone most cards from? So, you oh, know, those you are the things. Low frequency. <laughs> low frequency. I did a bit of a competition to find yeah. the cheapest RFID cloner I actually possibly could. Sorry, am I? Ah, here it is. The cheapest RFID cloner I could find that worked reliably. An actual fact I thought was really good. One of these. Yep. £4.20 yep, the... this cost me. <laughs> and then when I bought it about about a week later, I got an advert on Amazon going, £2.80 or whatever. It was like, damn, I wish I'd bought it even cheaper. That thing, for most low-frequency yep. stuff, just works. And you know what? Oh, it's it's fantastic. I mean, that you don't even basically... you've got two buttons. Read and write. You press one, it goes beep. You press it against a tag, press right, boom, done. So... So I mean, some of the, I mean the the tools. It's you know I, I've the one thing is you know just saying you can get a lot of cheap stuff out there, but there's also a lot of expensive things as well. So yeah. <laughs> that's that's the thing is it can be an expensive hobby as well. So but going back to one of the things you said, I, mean, um, I just kind of like to kind of expand a bit on as well is that you're absolutely right. You know, one that concerns me as well is that when we're looking at the cybersecurity industry as a whole, that you know budgets are increasing, their um, companies are becoming more profitable, you know, revenues are increasing. Um, but that you know is a concern because it means that companies that basically are needing to to respond, they're needing to spend more. They might become you know incidents are increasing, attacks are increasing, the services are increasing. Um, and I think one of the things that you know I, I'm my concern is that we're we're still doing the same old approaches of reactive to security. We're in the approach that we're basically you know we're patching yesterday's incidents, yesterday's issues, yesterday's security, we're basically not thinking about how can we future-proof it? How can we get to the point where... Well, we're taking we... yesterday's architecture and, appro- yep. and and then putting it into tomorrow's vulnerabilities. Yep, that's exactly. And it's it's the challenge that we're doing is that how do we start future-proofing security? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I mean, the good thing is at least one area that when I look at the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report, um, there was indications of you know certain areas of improvements. You know, that's, there's certain areas that, um, you know, awareness is improving. Um, mm. Phishing is down. But, of course, ransomware is up, which means that, you know, basically some things, some things we're getting better at, but in other cases we're becoming more impacted from. So what do you think, kind of, you know, what, what areas of organizations, what would you, know, you think about that areas that organizations can really look at that would be something they can invest in would get the, the, the most, you know, improvements in their security risk or, or, or posture? What would be the basis of of somewhere? Yeah, I would say with things like business email compromise, Mm -hmm. um, you can spend all your time trying to educate your senior management and you can spend all your time trying to filter the email. And you know what? They'll still get through. But you could spend a very small amount of time putting the right financial controls in place Mm -hmm. and the right trust model in place in the finance, well, with the finance community to make sure that one single person getting fooled by an email, which they will get fooled by an Mm -hmm. email, um, and this is the, the, the fallacy I'll come on to in a second. Yeah. You could put that in place. And that means that even if the person does get in, they can't transfer a material sum of money. And like, yep. actually, that's the best bang for buck right there. You could spend millions on trying to prevent all the emails coming through. You could spend millions on educating and doing awareness movies. And you probably should. Maybe mm. not spend millions, but probably yeah. should anyway. But you know what? On that particular one, just spend your time with the finance team and say, actually, how do I stop someone from making a material monetary transfer if they get fooled? Because there was a great story that came up uh, today, I believe, about a load of social media accounts. Uh, 4,000 mm-hmm. social media accounts were stolen by um, 
some um, hackers, and they were trying to steal mainly um, um, YouTube and Instagram accounts. And the way they were doing okay. it would be reaching out to people and saying, hey, we'd like to sponsor you, and we'd like to do a collab. Could you install <laughs> this software and then review it? Now, someone's going, oh, these stupid people installing mm. this software. Oh. And I, re I was replied quite negatively, going, actually, this is the person who is hoping to make YouTube their career, their yeah. life. It's going to become their income source. Mm -hmm. They don't have the ability to be able to say, no, that sounds dodgy. They have to say, you know what? I have to take a risk because if I don't, I can't, I have to collaborate with people. Mm -hmm. I have to do these things. And that's the problem. And, the, and attackers know that and, and they know where your, where your weaknesses is. And in that case, it's, you have to do it. And anyone who thinks that they will not be fooled by a sufficiently well-written phishing email hasn't met a sufficiently well-written phishing email or hasn't realized they've already clicked on them. Yep, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, as security professionals as well, you know, we have to be so digilent, di diligent on everything that comes in, uh, and they are they are so authentic looking, so difficult to detect today that um, you know the attackers are you know they know what we're looking for. They know how to obfuscate it. They know how to disguise it. They know how to make sure that it's something that we want, and it gets very difficult. And you're absolutely right. One of the things I want to kind of hone in on and talk about is that you know I completely agree is that. We, we can't, one of the methods of basically, you know, that's been a priority is, of course, cybersecurity awareness training. And I think it's important. I think it's important to a certain aspect. But what we shouldn't be relying on is turning all of our employees into cybersecurity professionals. That's not going to work. It's, it's, it's not the way to reduce the risk because ultimately attackers only need one success. They only need one person to, to, to click on something or to type something in. So you're absolutely right that we need to start thinking about, well, you know, that shouldn't be my basically dependency. I shouldn't be dependent on all employees becoming cybersecurity professionals and not clicking on something. What we should be looking at, to your point, is how do we make sure that if somebody does click on something, that it limits the How do we impact. improve resilience? Yes. It's like I was having a, a great conversation with someone a long, long, long time ago about um, uh, children on the internet. Mm -hmm. And this person was taking a completely different approach where they said, don't try and block your child from being able to access all dodgy sites because it will not work mm -hmm. at all. Teach them resilience and say, look, you're going to see horrendous stuff. You're going to see this. This is going to happen. And teach them that they have the right level of resilience so that actual fact, they go, oh, you know what? No, that wasn't for me. Yep. No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. It reminds me, you know, anyone who's had kids, you know, the kids are going to put their hand in the stove. <laughs> but, but you want to teach them. And, you know, a lot Hopefully of people. Hopefully not more than once. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I think you're absolutely right. Because what happens is that even even plugs in the house, we used to go around putting all of these little you know protection you know on on the sockets that didn't have anything plugged into it. So if kids put their finger into it, and you know I, I was one of those parents who actually went around and did all of those safety things, and we realized, and we did that with our first child. Yes, and, you didn't do it with your second, did you? <laughs> no, we didn't do it with the second one. <laughs> we were exactly the same here. We had all the corners masked off for our... Sorry, uh, sorry, um, my children, if you do watch this at some point in time. Yes, for Ellie, we did everything. Yeah. And for Ellie, it was like, you know what? Probably not necessary. See, I was a third child. And oh. someone described it thusly. When you're making pizzas at home, when you make your first pizza at home, it's perfectly made with all the right ingredients. When you make your second pizza at home, well, maybe you run out a bit of the sauce and a bit of the cheese, but you kind of make it okay. <laughs> By the third one, it's just like, I've got a bit of dough. I just may just get just just, just get this in. So I'll make something. Maybe it'll turn okay. And someone said, that's what being a third child is. 
<laughs> the leftover toppings for the pizza, <laughs> so whatever, whatever's remaining. But you're absolutely right. I mean, when I think about it, second child comes along, you're thinking, you know, okay, you know, you start switching to that rather than being that, you know, buffer of everything and try to protect them from the bad world. But what you do is you try to teach them and educate them into what's right and what's wrong. You teach them how to use the plug and suck it rather than, you know, preventing them from learning. And I think that's really what we need to get into is, is, is the learning, you know, uh, and awareness shouldn't be to prevent them from doing something. It should be to learn them to make sure how they do it, what they at least risk. And the, at the ultimate where they, you know, don't harm themselves or they don't, you know, bring the company down. What we really want to do is make sure, you know, as children that teach them how to use a socket, you know, actually, you know, teach them that there's bad things out there that basically, you know, that they need to be aware um, that, you know, not everything in the internet's real, you know, so we should be teaching them, you know, rather than preventing them from getting to those places, we should be make sure that they can make educated decisions about how to make sure it doesn't harm them or impact them. So, you know, absolutely right. We should, so we, what we should be doing is, is treating all our employees like our second child. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, we need to be teaching our employees about resilience and that's what we talk to them about. We talk about resilience and say that you are going to click on things. Bad things are going to happen. What we try and do is we try and make it so that when these bad things happen, you can react and recover and recognize and move on because you can't like, for example, if you're selling things online, you are going to get buying things online as well. You're going to get ripped off. It's going to happen. So you, you try and make sure that if it does happen, because it's going to happen, it's not the end of your buying or selling career online. Absolutely. You know, to your point, you know, you talk about the credit card side of things is that you want to make sure that you have the ability to make sure that that limit's flexible, that you can change that limit to when you need it to be higher, you can increase it. But don't leave it at that amount. Reduce it back down to the amount that you use on a daily basis. So make sure that your your, your risk is dynamic. Um, so your credit card isn't, you know, open to whatever 30,000 euros or whatever that, and you leave it at that, but you actually put it down to the limit that you use more frequently and only increase and decrease it when you want to to do those bigger purchases. And this is a good conversation to have internally. Um, like Mm -hmm. we were having a conversation, which I believe comes out of um, retail, ALE, annual Mm -hmm. loss expectancy. And it's interesting Mm -hmm. that in retail, they have the concept of shrinkage and people understand that you will get a certain amount of stuff stolen every year. Mm-hmm. You can't prevent it. And then when you talk to people outside of retail, they go, so, so how many incidents are okay in a year? And they go, mm-hmm. well, none. And I, I had a great conversation with someone who, who uh, was actually working for a three letter agency. And we were having an argument mm-hmm. about um, how many, uh, how, how, and we won't go into the politics here, but mm-hmm. if it was acceptable for them to monitor everything and acceptable for the kind <laughs> of like breaches of privacy that they were being accused mm-hmm. of at the time. Mm-hmm. And he turned around and said, so how many major incidents, major terrorist incidents are okay every year? And I said, two. And he goes, what? <laughs> I went, well, you asked for a number. Don't ask for a number and then be surprised. Uh, yes, zero is a number. I said, I don't think it's two. I said, but I, I don't know. I said, but it, it, you can't have it as zero. Because yep. to prevent everything from happening, bad stuff is going to happen. I mean, even when you look at your risk profile, you're saying, well, that's a once every 50 years, that's a once every 100 years, mm-hmm. that's a once every five years. These things happen. And sometimes yep. we try and set ourselves up to go, that must never happen. And that's often where the security industry fails mm-hmm. because we turn around and what do we say? When a, when a company has a major security breach, what's the first thing that gets screamed at by mainly armchair CISOs? Fire mm-hmm. the CISO. And I say, really? 
Um, you'll notice that's mainly armchair CISOs who say fire the CISO rather than mm -hmm. actual CISOs who are going, oh, I've got a mortgage to pay. I would really like to continue paying that mortgage. But the point here is, if your first response on any security incident is to mm -hmm. get rid of the, the very experience and the muscle memory in that organization, I'm not kind of sure what organization you're trying to build, but I don't want to be part of it. Yeah. And, and that's, that's an that's industry a... where we can change. And we can start yeah. to educate our own in, our own stakeholders to say, look, that stuff is probably likely to happen if you can't. A very good friend of mine, I don't want to mention his name because I'm not sure if he's, I don't know, this is Chatham House Rules, yes. said one of his people said to him, uh, have you got enough money? And he goes, well, I've never got enough money, but if you give me a large amount of money, I'll guarantee you that probably nothing will happen. If you mm -hmm. give me an even more larger amount of money, I'll try and guarantee that even less will happen. And that's the point. You can't prevent everything. No, you're so don't right. set yourself up for fail. Our job. So one thing I realized, you know, years ago, um, I did a pen test on Parse Station. It was really interesting because I always, when I learn things from from different events, um, it's what changes me, and that's what what what's significant. In this particular event, what I realized, I thought to that point in time, I thought my job was about enforcing cybersecurity. That's what I thought my job was. And that was a realization when I had a conversation with the CEO and CFO at the time. And that was when I, that my whole, they changed my opinion forever. That would day when basically I tried, me and the scissor were doing a presentation to get more budget. And the CEO and CFO said, great presentation, but you need to show how you, what you're doing is helping the company. How is it making the employee's job better? And that was a realization for me that my job isn't cybersecurity anymore. It may have been to that point, but my job is to actually listen and understand business risk. And this was a fundamental change. And you're absolutely right. We cannot limit all risks. We can't prevent all risks. And neither should risks. you. And, so, and absolutely neither should you try and eliminate all risk. Because if you remove all risk, then you'll remove all potential for profit. Yep. I mean, someone and, ever said, um, Unix allows you to do really stupid things so you can do really <laughs> intelligent things. And if you turned around and said, I am going to pack every employee into this little bubble mm. that they cannot possibly make a mistake, I'll show you, a, if, even if you can do that, I'll show you a company that will wither and die within five years. Absolutely. And this was the thing, actually, you know, there's been a big conversation. I was, I did, I was doing an interview um, uh, about Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And for me, I was actually a bit upset. That the, the theme for this, this uh, the third week was all about, or fourth week, of October was all about cybersecurity first. And I completely disagree with it. I, I was thinking that that's the wrong approach because it's not cyber, it is not cybersecurity first. It's it's basically it's 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 people first, it's business first, it's you know um, operational you know success, it's profit, it's it's the cybersecurity is a supporting element of all of those. Well, there's and, like there's lots of different risks, and we like to take yeah. cybersecurity and put it up on its pedestal. And forget that if you're in a sales organization, there's like sales risk, there's market risk, mm. there's what's going on. Yep. And I would think that I'm, I, I would like my my CEO and senior management mm -hmm. to be saying that cybersecurity risk is not the biggest risk on their minds at this moment in time. It's not. It's not. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be. I mean, this was a real, and, and it always goes back to that point where where I had that conversation. I realized that my job is all about risk. And the conversation, it was interesting because the conversation with the CFO was one of the most interesting. And ultimately, basically, it made me realize that my job is to reduce the impact of, you know, so you want to understand what is the potential, what's the, you know, what is the likeliness of that risk happening? What is the potential impact if it does happen and when it does happen? And how can I 
reduce the impact? How can I make sure that I can actually, you know, and, and the CFO at the time was, you know, they're willing to spend a certain amount, the percentage of that total risk to reduce it. Um, and that was basically ultimately, you know, and that's where I got a, a better understanding about what the potential budget was. But actually, it made me realize that cybersecurity is not first. Cybersecurity is a supporting element across all other business functions and services. It's a supporting element. And it's one thing that we use. We use cybersecurity to reduce risk. But it's not, it's not a first. It's not even potentially second. It's an element. And some of those things might be process. It might be technology. It might be people. It might be even insurance. They might look at different ways to reduce that risk. But cybersecurity is only one component. It's a, it's a, it's a method and technique of reducing risk and reducing the impact. And that was a big realization for me. And that was for me was, you know, the whole theme of cybersecurity. And cybersecurity is not just one month. It's every month of the year. And, you know, we, we should be practicing it. Um, but it made me realize that, yeah, our job is all about risk um, and reducing that risk. Where possible. Without giving the C-level members of staff confidence to be able mm-hmm. to make the decisions, understanding or knowing that they've got all the information they need to have. Yep. Um, so that they can take risk if mm-hmm. they want to. And they should be completely logical and healthy to take risk. Absolutely. It's, and this this means that you one of the things that you, you you mentioned earlier, and I think this is probably one of the areas that businesses really need to you know think about as part of that risk reduction is resiliency. Is really about if something does happen, how do you recover and continue, um, and how do you make sure that that is more likely um, than you know less likely. So meaning that. When I've I've done worked on incidents, and I remember you you know organizations face that one organization had lost a complete one year's worth of their digital data. I've even seen I've seen individuals I, I've had uh, to help uh, advise and consult individuals who their home home PC and machine that basically had a, a huge hard drive connected to it of all their entire you know thirty years of life digital life their baby pictures family pictures you know uh, their educational their university content, everything sitting on that hard disk encrypted with no backup. Mm-hmm. And you're also looking at businesses with that same you know, scenario where their backup strategy was actually protecting against you know, hardware failure or data corruption. And it was online. And, and actually, you make a really, really good point. This is why mm-hmm. ransomware is so damaging. If you talk mm-hmm. to a lot of pure play IT people and look at their business continuity plan, their entire business continuity plan is about um, natural incident. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a data center fire. It's about a flood. It's about yep. a tape unit falling over. It's about whatever these things are. And it's about the big difference between playing a computer game against bots versus playing against mm-hmm. human players. Mm-hmm. If a data center is on fire, it burns in a mathematically predictable way. It, so you've got oxygen, you've got fuel yep. and, they, this, and heat, and this will basically create this triangle and it will go through in a very predictable way it doesn't suddenly start a fire in a totally different data center because it sees that you put all your resources mm-hmm. into fixing that one. And that's the big difference that a lot of the, a lot of the IT people are then unused to dealing with a, an incident where mm-hmm. someone is watching and they are trying to make the worst possible thing happen to you potentially. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, and a lot of the instances as well is that, you know, there used to be more kind of opportunistic and automated um, where now um, you're getting more people hands on keyboard and they're watching and learning and, you know, changing their techniques. They're modifying their attack path in order to, to get around your response uh, to those basically techniques. 
So it's and getting more difficult for the the market as well. So mm-hmm. you've got initial access brokers who are just basically yep. buy, are just getting in and then selling that bit. I mean, I, I, descri- I was discussing it with one of our salespeople and he looked at me and goes, but that's exactly what we do. As in, we segment the market and we do bits that are profitable and we let other people take the opportunity mm-hmm. on bits that are less profitable. We don't want to take the, or that we don't want to take the risk on. It's like, exactly. It, yep. It's I mean, exactly the same. What was, what was really interesting, and, and I remember doing an instant response in one organization as well, is that when you start doing digital forensics and you start looking through logs, you start finding that actually there's multiple attackers on the network at some point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the last one that you find because they're the most destructive. Um, that when you truly start looking at the logs and start uncovering. But to your point is the organized crime and cyber criminals are definitely, they're focusing on skills. They're, you know, they're, the crypto creators are no longer trying to deploy the crypto. What they're doing is they're creating affiliate programs and making yeah. it as a service and giving it to those who will then use and abuse it. And those who are using abusing the crypto, they're actually buying the access from access brokers who's just specialize in getting the access. And then they don't want to talk to you when they deploy the ransomware. They'll hire a help desk team who will actually communicate with you to negotiate the ransom and actually help you recover the files. So it's this whole basically production line of criminal networks who are getting more specialized and investing in their specialization, where it's getting very difficult for organizations. And as we found out, there's also then cybersecurity organizations who allegedly then go to the cyber criminals and go, how much do you want? Okay, that plus 10% is what we'll charge back to the client. Yeah. Like, I heard that story as well, and you're going, oh, yeah. oh, that was someone who stepped over a line somewhere. And you're getting, I mean, insurance companies are taking that into their own hands as well because they're faced with the double, you know, the double scenario into, you know, how do they make sure that they don't lose as much? And they're also, you know, hiring, uh, uh, you know, security and, and uh, professionals who will communicate with the criminals to try and negotiate a lesser ransom. Um, and I've also heard now that some of the cyber um, cyber insurance companies mm-hmm. are now doing their own um, uh, security assessments to then inform their decisions for what risks they actually want to take, <laughs> which I'm not surprised at, really. But I think what's going to happen is going to be exactly the same mm-hmm. as happened in the uh, physical uh, market in that um, you're going to start to see the cybersecurity defense market mm-hmm. being driven by the insurance companies. Like yep. I have a five lever mortise lock on the door. Mm-hmm. I've got another lock on the door. I have an alarm. I have all of these things and security lights. I have all of those things because my insurance company demands it. Yep. Um, and I think exactly the same thing is going to start to be when the first time we start to, when we started mm-hmm. to see it actually in the questionnaires, but I want to see them where they start saying, if you do not have MFA on mm-hmm. all of your um, um, uh, admin accounts, we will not insure you. I think they need to start getting down to very prescriptive measures where they say, these are a basic couple of things. If you don't do, sorry, you can't get insurance unless you have those things. And and absolutely. And you also need to, you know, prove it, you know, and and demonstrate that you've got them in place because you're absolutely right. You know, when when I remember, I I grew up in Belfast. um, And uh, so getting my first car was almost impossible to get insurance and you couldn't get a car unless you had insurance. It was like, it was the most difficult thing. So therefore you had to make sure that one is that, uh, you had all the locks and, you know, had, uh, basically protection. You had, uh, locks, uh, nuts on the, the wheels. So people couldn't steal the wheels. And then you had to have steering wheel locks and you had to have chains around your steering wheel. You had to have all of those things in place. You had to have a car alarm, um, you know, uh, you have to have proper have uh, a, central we have locking. A, we have a real example yeah. from the car industry, and I don't want to say the mm-hmm. manufacturer, you can Google it, where they had a major problem with um, 
um, uh, what they called um, a keyless entry theft. Mm-hmm. And yep. the insurance companies just chucked the certain models of high-end 4x4 into, like, I don't know, into an uninsurable category, and suddenly the manufacturer decided they could fix this issue. Yep, because yeah, absolutely. The, the relays, the relays on the, the, wire, yeah. the wireless keys, yeah. So. And because they turned around and they said, well, we can't fix this. And then the customer said, well, I can't insure your car, so I can't buy it. And of course, yeah. in that market, it's really interesting because especially on the high-end stuff, a lot of people had it on mm-hmm. um, on on finance or PCP. So it was very easy for the for the um, the um, uh, the consumers to say, if I can't mm-hmm. insure it, I can't have it. Um, so, so, so I need to go elsewhere. And suddenly, so the question, insurance yeah. companies got the got car manufacturer to fix their problem. So, a question: I mean, we saw that with the car industry, and it's very effective. Mm-hmm. So it has. So, do, do you mean let's let's put that into the cybersecurity side, you know, landscape side of things? Is that? So we see, you know, coming in the near future, let's say governments will require organizations uh, that's providing digital solutions or whatever to have insurance or, or some regulation. We have got PCI, we've yeah, got cyber essentials. Yeah, yeah. So something that's going to kind of, uh, that will, you know, one of those regulations, whether it be GDPR, CCPA, cyber essentials, that's going to say, okay, for you to get those certifications, you also have to have insurance. And then basically what's going to happen is that fold around that will force organizations that in order to get cyber insurance, they have to have certain X, Y, and Z, Z in place. No, I, I don't think that's going to oh. occur in that way. I think mm. it'll just be a case of if you want insurance, then the insurer will insist on certain things. But I don't think that any of the current legislations mm. will force the insurance. Okay. Um, I don't, maybe, in certain, maybe in certain industries, maybe in certain areas that maybe could in be certain industries. Yeah. Because I can't imagine that demanding that someone pay for insurance mm-hmm. because like even car insurance you don't have to insure your car mm-hmm. you can lodge a bond of money and just essentially just say i've got enough money to pay out any claim i don't need insurance yeah. but that's not legal advice uh, please <laughs> check but i know in this country at least you, you can drive without mm-hmm. insurance because essentially you just lodge a ginormous chunk of cash and I think it's what the MOD right. do and people like that because mm. they can't insure. So they just self, you can self insure. I don't think anyone's going to force you to insure via a third party. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe they might turn around and say you'd have to force self insurance. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah, what's going to happen. You cover it yourself. Yeah. It's only you have to have, it's mandatory for insurance to have for the, for the driving roads, public roads. So here you would have to sure have self insurance is not possible. Not it's in rare in the UK, but it is possible. Yeah. Yeah, not in Estonia here. Uh, you definitely have the you have mandatory road insurance, uh, but what you can do is then uh, you're basically liable then to you know the damages of third parties and everything else. But you have to have the minimum insurance to drive it on the road. I could drive. I could go without insurance. I have a car at my country house that is uninsured, but we can only drive it around our field. We can't drive it in public roads. So, um, but so you, you get limited to what your usage would be. Uh, so you know, maybe maybe there's a there's a potential of that might happen. To, uh, you know that there's some some. I think it'd be more industry specific that if you are going to be providing some type of service that might be regulated, that there may ultimately be some type of insurance that would come there. Mm. I, so, I think they'll, what they'll do is they'll make it morally responsible mm-hmm. to have third party insurance to cover certain risks. And I think as the costs mm-hmm. go up and up and up and up, yeah. obviously with things like 
um, car insurance for large corporates, self-insurance becomes quite quite um, um, attractive, especially with huge companies with large car fleets, because mm-hmm. they know exactly what their annual loss expectancy is yeah. going to be. They know exactly what the cost of the premiums are going to be. And when you take the premiums and the premium tax and how much money they could spend out of the last 20 years, they instantaneously go, that's mm, cheaper for us to self-insure, easy yeah. for us to insure. Whereas this cyber attacks, I don't think that maths can be done at this moment yeah. in time. Because let's be some, honest, some they companies don't are doing it though. Yeah, some companies are doing what's called as cyber captives. And cyber right. captives is exactly to your point, is that what well, they're basically saying, well, we can't get insurance. You know, it's gonna be you know costs or you know, whatever. But what we can do is um, we can basically take uh, a certain amount of money as a captive and invest that and make money off that, but it's basically set aside for when incidents do happen. I think um, I think that's actually what Target had used. They had a cyber captive um, and several policies as well uh, mm. when they were, were, were attacked. So um, somewhat large organizations who have that ability to offset it themselves, you know, insuring themselves per se, if they have enough cash uh, to put aside for that. And that is an investment. Um, you know, they, they will actually use that for, for you know, gaining investments and profit. But it is there in case they do need to respond to sometimes. I think people are forgetting on the whole cyber insurance. It's not just the money that you may need. It's also the fast access to services that you may need to have. So you don't need to get that from your insurance company. You could just build up a a large portfolio of, um, Mm -hmm. of, of companies that you have on retainer that you can call in. Um, and you can manage all of that, but sometimes it's a lot easier and cheaper to actually let somebody else manage mm-hmm. that that retainer and portfolio. And that's also the other aspect of what you get from insurance. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, we've had you know guests on the show who specialize in, for example, in response, and they do, they highly recommend that you do have a retainer because uh, when you have a you know major incident and several companies are hit at the same time, what happens is resources are become almost unavailable. Um, and this is where it's, it's making sure you, you have access to expertise and resources who come in and know what they're doing to help you recover quickly. Because recovering quickly, that's, that's what organizations, that's what's costing money. If you're delaying your recoverability, um, the organization I mentioned about the ransomware case, um, their backup was encrypted, but they were fortunate enough to have a, a, a system that was one year old that was part of a migration, so hardware migration. And they were fortunate that was still around. Um, and they were able to use that as a baseline to recover. But it took them two months to get back, um, you know, to get back to a state where their actually services were, you know, basically providing the same services they were before the ransom. So you think about that limited services for two month period. That's what organizations should be really looking at, you know, that that type of indicator. But what if your organization stopped providing your services for two months? What's that what's impact? The revenue impact. What's exactly. the long term impact where customers? And this is the point is, if it's a cybersecurity incident, it'll be different to a, like, for example, like COVID mm-hmm. or the chip or chip shortages like at the moment, because that impacts the entire industry or impacts the entire sector. It's typically not affecting customer A or mm-hmm. whatever, whereas a cyber, a cyber attack is affecting probably just you. Yep. So your customer can go to the side. You, you've then got the bottled water mm-hmm. conundrum where... You, you, the customer can just walk to the next bus person and, and, and buy the service from the next person, depending on what industry you're in, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's where they make them so that makes them so worrying. Yep, absolutely. So I want to I want to wrap it up a little bit and kind of get into summarization. So <laughs> I think one of the things I've got so let's far on a positive note because we've, we've got a bit of a downer. Let's come back up again. Let's come back up again. I mean, I I do think one is that um, organizations are becoming more resilient. They are looking at these. They, they are going through the practices and they're taking that knowledge and, and 
and making sure that they are becoming not just instant response plans, but instant response ready, and they are investing in the right areas. I think we really need to, I think we need to, one is, you're absolutely right. What concerns me is when this, you know, instant response companies are doing really well. That's not a good indicator of a measurement um, of how the threat landscape is happening. Um, but, but I, I think in a cybersecurity industry right. who is not servicing humanity particularly well, Mm-hmm. in certain respects. I don't want to call out any bad behavior. We've all seen it yep. where we've seen where the industry is essentially eating the IT industry and certain people are kind of forgetting on what side of the fence that mm-hmm. they're on. When you see the red teamer who's overjoyed because there's a vulnerability that they can use to now break mm-hmm. into companies and make lots of money. And they, you've got to be really careful there because actual fact, yes, you can make lots of money, but you're making lots of money if, you should be trying to do yourself out of a job. That's the old, old, old joke with a cybersecurity person. You should be trying to do yourself out of a job. And I think as an industry, there's a lot of people who are sitting there going, well, actually, how can I prolong this industry? Yeah, I don't want to fix the problem. Right. Yeah. I want to make money off this problem. Yeah. And, and there's mean, a very I... subtle line between doing good and prolonging the issue. You're like the, if you're like the, the lawyer who could close mm-hmm. the case is quickly, acquiescing, yeah, quickly, acquiescing quickly to the, the yeah. client's demands. Yeah, you can sue them for an extra 50 million. Yeah, you can do this. Whereas in actual fact, they should be saying, actually, no, just close it down. It's better for everyone if you close it down. But mm-hmm. if you close it down, my revenue stream stops. I'll make a lot more money if you keep on suing these people. And that's that's the worry that I have in certain elements so, of our industry. Yeah. So there was actually, you know, years ago, I remember in the, the actually, when you think about it, the, it just brought, brought back something in memory in the insurance industry. There was discussions around, for example, doing uh, cyber insurance like a PL. So you basically, as a collective. And the idea was, is that you would basically pay cyber insurance. And that if you didn't use it, just like you have, like, for example, in the car, no claims bonus is that at the end of the year, if you didn't make a claim, you got a little bit of back and you made money off basically that insurance. So there actually, there was an idea several years ago into doing the same on insurance is that people would actually go into the economy of sharing. We'd all, you know, organizations go together. We put it, this money into insurance. And if all of us didn't actually have any claims in the year because by getting that insurance, you had to have some basis of best practices and controls in place. That that was actually a profit. That was actually became a profit stream because that was being invested. But it was also that you might have some of the companies within that portfolio become victim, but it meant that there was enough money in that entire pot to help that company recover. So it was actually, there was discussions around, you know, treating it like that type of uh, scenario where it actually became a lucrative investment. It wasn't just a, uh, a money that you put, a, put in and never seen again. It was actually something that if you didn't have claims and you didn't, you know, request the help from the insurance company that you actually get a bonus back every year. Um, so maybe that's and a look that's, at way. I mean, that would be cyber insurance companies. If you're watching this, well, that, that's what we want. We, yeah, we, we, we want it to be profitable for everybody. Exactly. We want money back at the end of the year. So, um, but I think, I mean, absolutely for me, I think what we're getting away from this and the discussions I'm having is really that, you know, it's all about making sure that it's, it isn't cybersecurity first. And it isn't about making everyone in the front line cybersecurity professionals. It's about making, helping understand what the risk is and looking where possible to reduce the impact. And I think that's all to make, to your point, making organizations more resilient, being able to recover quick, have access to the expertise resources, um, and make sure that, you know, one is you don't have to be faced with paying a ransom, um, that you can recover 
in a much more efficient and operational manner that you're not looking at losing your service for two months and what would that potentially, you know, that cost be? Um, and potentially, you know, cyber assurance might be an option to help you offset that risk. Uh, Although, and important. this might worry people, what happens if paying the ransom is actually cheaper than fixing the security problem? <laughs> that becomes, that becomes, and that's where really ransomware becomes commoditized. Actually, um, it was one of that's one where it of, becomes protection money. Is it cheaper uh, to pay that one that protects you against <laughs> that one? And then when does the one that you're paying to protect you against all the rest of them actually just become a legitimate security company? So I remember actually on a panel not long ago, I actually think it was with Rick Ferguson and we had the discussion and uh, ultimately what happened was at the end, I thought, you know, ultimately what's going to happen is, is ransomware is going to turn into a subscription service is that you'll actually pay the ransomware criminals to not attack you <laughs> and actually get into getting into that, you know, subscription ransomware is a subscription so that they're actually protecting you and telling you that, oh, this is how we're well, going to get I, access. I wonder actually if Terry Pratchett called it. You, you've <laughs> read by Terry Pratchett with yes, the Thieves absolutely. Guild. You'll have the ransomware guild that you will simply pay into yeah. and ransomware will be over. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's gone back to the old mafia protection money. <laughs> so that's so. Um, but any any final thoughts or any final comments for the audience? Um, you know what? what yeah, no. I'm, my my focus would be hmm. focus on cyber hygiene, focus on making the organization resilient, and make, focus on making the people resilient. Mm-hmm. And remember, you can't protect against everything, and neither should you try. And don't set yourself up for failure. If you're in the cybersecurity industry, have a conversation with your senior leadership so that they understand that you're not godlike. You can't protect against everything, and neither should you. You should be advising them on what risks they could and should take, and bad things are going to happen. And you know what? You'll be standing right next to them to help bring the company back when those things happen. Absolutely. That, that is the wisest advice I've ever heard. And spot on. So it's a great way, great way to end. <laughs> so, uh, Quentin, it's been a pleasure having you on. I'm really looking forward. To, I definitely recommend the audience do subscribe to Quentin's. Uh, what what's your YouTube channel uh, name? Uh, just it, to Quentin Taylor. Quentin, so if you just Quentin search Taylor. for my name, um, yeah. if you search for RFID hacking, you'll probably find me as well. But uh, I also uh, my you my Twitter handle to me somewhere around here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, my YouTube channel's in that bio. Yep. We'll make sure it's in the show notes for sure. If it's Perfect. okay to, to add them. And I do love when you're in, in the little man cave um, is always uh, fun to watch. So, um, and it's been a pleasure. So thank you for thank having you. me on the show. It's been a great discussion. Um, there is, you know, some, th- some things of, you know, things for improvement in the industry, uh, but definitely some highlights of things that we can prioritize and focus. So it's been awesome. Um, so for the audience, tune in every two weeks for the four one access tonight, subscribe, go back and listen to previous episodes. Quentin has been fantastic. Look forward to maybe we'll do one on RFID hacking. Uh, maybe we can also get Chris, yes. Yes. get Chris on the show as well. So um, Super, yeah. himself. But uh, thank you and been awesome. Stay safe. Take care, everyone. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for Business by going to www.cybrae.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.